Well, if you have Bibles, uh, make your way to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in that same passage in John 13 this morning. And I'm reminded, um, even in light of the fact that it's Family Worship Sunday, uh, that there is really a beautiful simplicity to the Gospel message. If you've lived for five seconds, you know that life itself is not that simple. Um, Life is complex. uh, Life is complicated. But Jesus, through his words and through his life, and this is a great example of it in this passage, cuts through the fog of all of the complexity of what real life looks like. And what he does is he does that is he calls us back to the story of God. He calls us back to the true story of the world. And he teaches us how to align our lives according to that story. So this morning we're concluding uh, this month-long, really, mini-series uh, that we've been in, considering what life is like in light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And as we've considered over these past few weeks, the resurrection of Jesus brings new life for us. It imparts a new authority to us. It gives us a new measure and marker for our identity. And it gives us new boldness. But the real essence, the real proof that we are alive, that we have by faith been united with Jesus, and that his death is really our death to sin, and that his resurrection is us being made alive to God. The real essence of that is our love for one another. And herein lies really the the beautiful simplicity. What does it mean, if you were to answer in succinct form, what does it mean to live in light of Jesus' resurrection? It means we love. It means we love. In the 13th chapter of John's Gospel, right after Judas Iscariot departs the upper room to betray Jesus. Jesus begins what's commonly known as his farewell discourse. And in the passage that we're reading together this morning, he begins that farewell discourse with this new commandment. But what's interesting is the new commandment is really not new. Uh, It's an ancient commandment. It's as old as any commandments are. It's the command to love. And what that means is that if you find yourself, when you find yourself in these places where you feel yourself to be a pale shadow of who you really are, uh, a pale shadow of who you were meant to be. You find yourself reeking of death and reeking of decay instead of resurrection life. The remedy to that is not complicated. It's also not easy, but it's beautifully simple. It's to know the love of Jesus, the love that he has shown you, and it's to love one another with that same love. And so I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love, John chapter 13. I'm going to back up and start in verse 31 and read through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, compel us all to simply take you at your word. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Do not let us get away from your word without being caught by its promises and its powerful joy. And we pray this this morning for our sake, Father, and we pray this this morning for those that we love. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
This command to love is an ancient one. So why does Jesus call this a new commandment? Or maybe to put it another way, what's actually new about the new commandment? We're going to look at three things from this text this morning. A new era, a new example, and a new effect. A new era, a new example, a new effect. So first, a new era. After Judas departs, the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples is, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And Jesus here is talking about the imminence of his death and his resurrection. And if we're familiar, if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, you know he's actually talked about that a lot with his disciples up to this point. But right here in the upper room, he's on the precipice of that. It's not long. It's, not, it's only hours after speaking these words that he's going to be betrayed, turned over to the authorities, beaten, mocked, and hung up to die. And this word here, as Jesus says it at the beginning of this text, glorified, it's a really important word. And if you think about it, it's a really ironic word because he's about to go through, in the coming hours, one of the most humiliating forms of torture and execution that has ever been devised by the human mind. So Jesus' whole life, his whole life in ministry on this earth is done in a state of what we'd call humiliation. His life and his ministry is done in a state of humiliation. He's the one through whom the world was created. He had all of that glory and he left it to be born not in a castle, but in a feeding trough. To be raised not known, but in obscurity. He was rejected in his own hometown. He, he did gain a following with sinners. He did gain a following with the marginalized of his day. But he was rejected and turned away by those in power. And then he was falsely accused, and he was beaten, and he was mocked, carried his own cross, and he was hung up naked for six hours for all to see in this humiliating way to die. But as we look back on that and we read Jesus' own words about it and the apostles' words about it, we learn that God's glory has been at work in all of that. And for Jesus, as he says, now am I glorified, he is going on the other side of that to his own glorification. And we're celebrating that this whole month. God did not leave him in the grave. God raised him up on the third day. And a few weeks later, he ascended into heaven And since that day and today, where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's no longer in this state of humiliation. He's in a state of glorification. So Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is the inauguration of a new era. It is a, a new and definitive work in the redemptive history of God. The glory of God, which was eternally existent since before the beginning of time, has now, in the person of Jesus, entered into the fracture and the decay and the darkness of sin. And through his own humiliation, he has conquered the power of death and sin, and he's then returned to his glorified state. He didn't just go from glory to glory. He went from glory through humiliation and back to glory. And to sum all of that up in two words, we might say this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Uh, The power of Satan, sin, and death could not hold him, could not destroy him, He went through the worst kind of humiliation possible and then returned to glory. And what that means for you and I is that we are truly free to love each other. That we're no longer constrained uh, by slavery to sin. Sin, of course, still has ripple effects and impacts in our lives and in our relationships, but we're no longer constrained by slavery to sin. We're no longer 
under the dominion of sin. But we are now in this new day, the newness of life, which has been made possible by this new era that has been inaugurated by Jesus. Our primary text today is, this, is John's gospel. But listen to how John also writes about the same subject in his letter in 1 John chapter 2. He says there, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Why? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the new commandment is not new, John's saying. It's old, but at the same time, it is new. It is new because this new work has been done. The darkness is passing away and the true light is now shining. So consider this, ask yourself this. Do you love people like the darkness is passing away? Do you love people as if the darkness is passing away and, if, and as the true light is shining? Do you love people in light of the fact that God in Christ has won? If you're like me, I want to. And I would trust that many of you in this room have a heart and an intention. You want to love people like that. But at times, maybe you relate to this too, I withhold love from people. I'm timid in my love for people. I'm guarded in my love for people. Because perhaps like many of you, I've experienced hurt relationally. I've experienced some wounds and I have some scars relationally. I have, I'm slow and I'm timid in particular in pursuing deep friendships with other people because of that. And living this guarded, kind of reserved, withholding love kind of life, that would make sense. It would actually probably be the right decision if darkness still reigned. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the glorification of Jesus, the true light is already shining. And what that means is that you and I are free to love with all of the confidence that those sin still has effects in our relationships and big effects at that. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and the darkness is passing away. Just as Jesus here talks about his death as part of his glorification, this ironic word, he says, now is my glorification and he's going to his death. Just like that, in the kingdom of God, our wounds our humiliation in our pursuits to love other people will be caught up into the redemptive work that God is doing in the world. It will be caught up into the grand scheme of things. And the Apostle Paul talks about that in one of his letters. He says, these light and momentary afflictions, which if you know Paul's life, light and momentary is not the words, are not the words I would use to describe them. These light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So hear that and be encouraged, as hard as it will be to put this into practice, be encouraged that even when your love for other people leads you to the bottom, that even when loving other people brings about in your life the most humiliating experiences for you, vulnerability, being misunderstood, being rejected, being ignored, being trampled on, that you are, when that happens, when you are led to the bottom, still free to keep on loving with the confidence that none of that is in vain. None of it's in vain. It's a new day. It's a new era. The true light is already shining, and your love, your pursuit of love for other people is being caught up into the work of God, the glory of God, as he continues to push back the darkness. Second, 
The new commandment is new because Jesus is a new example. It's not only a new era. Jesus is a new example. No one has ever loved like God himself has loved. And nowhere is that more evident and visible. Nowhere is that love of God more tangibly on display than in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says here in John chapter 13, love one another just as I have loved you, immediately when he says, based on his own example, that's a new kind of love. Because the world has never known this depth of love, this quality of love, until it is enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. And as you heard me share earlier with the kids when they were up here, the backdrop of this new commandment is this really scandalous, uh, really upside-down display of love that we find at the beginning of chapter 13. In chapter 13, in verse 1, it says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then it proceeds to describe Jesus laying aside his outer garments and picking up a towel, tying it around his waist, and proceeding to wash the feet of all of the other disciples that were there in the room with him. And it truly was a disgusting, lowly job. Unpaved roads. Annabelle said, how did she put it? The, uh, the horses, they, what they leave behind was on, were, was on the road. It was the job that was reserved for the low man on the totem pole, the lowliest of servants. And yet, Jesus, who definitively, in reality, is the the most important person in that room, and even more than that, he's God in the flesh. He's the one who created the water in the bowl. He's the one who created the elements out of which the bowl and the towel themselves are fashioned. Not to mention the fact that he's the one who created the other people in the room with him. He's the one who takes that place of the lowliest servant, washes the feet of all of them, including Judas Iscariot, who's about to betray him. It's the immediate backdrop of that scene when Jesus immediately turns around then and says, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. And if that weren't enough, he goes on in this farewell discourse to say, no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he demonstrates exactly that love. He goes to the cross. He, he carries out his love all the way to the point of death. And it's this feet-washing, lay-down-your-life-for-your-friends kind of love that is the new example of the new commandment. This is the way that, that you and I are meant to love one another, with joy in taking the lowly place, even if there are other people, quote-unquote, lower than us in the room. Offering not just our, our time and our presence, but offering our very lives, sacrificing our very lives for the good of others. So I want to ask you this morning, do you love like this? And specifically, do you love other people in the local church like this? Other disciples, other followers of Jesus? Are you growing in your love for the men and the women and the children that are even sitting in your immediate vicinity this morning? I hope it's, it's really obvious how different that is from what many people consider to be involvement or participation in a local church. Um, it's a huge reason why you've heard us over the past months really wrestle with what's the best way to pursue life together in community and discipleship here at Liberty Church. This is one of the reasons why we felt compelled not to reinstate home groups this year and why we feel compelled not to add programs for everything. 
Because it's really easy, and I feel the pull of this probably just as you do, to pat ourselves on the back for activity and to pat ourselves on the back for participation and involvement and never really love one another. This is why you've heard us talk about things like the 55 one another's in the New Testament, why you'll hear us talk about that more in these weeks to come. Because our inclusion in the church, our connection to the people of God, is not ever meant to be about participation or involvement or even merely acts of service. At its most fundamental level, it is about love. Jesus washes his disciples' feet because he loves them. And he goes to the cross because he loves them and he loves you and us. There's no program, uh, there's no study, there's no sermon that can just magically give you this kind of love for the other people here in this church. What can? The only thing that can is truly seeing the love with which you yourself have been loved and believing that you really are loved by God. And in response then to that love that he has shown you in no greater way than his own death and resurrection, loving one another with that very same love that you yourself have received. And as you think about this, probably what immediately will come to mind are the excuses and the reasons for why you don't, why we don't do this. A lack of time, right? We're busy people, we're stretched thin, we don't have margin. Whenever we talk about time, though, it's, it's always a conversation about priority, it's always a conversation about priority because we make time for the things that we value. And if we value them enough, we make time to do that. Or maybe the obstacle or the excuse is uh, we lament the lack of reciprocity. We've put it out there multiple times and we've never gotten anything back in return. Or maybe, which, which is hurtful, which is hurtful. Or maybe we feel like we first deserve on the front end a level of comfort, a level of safety in place before we do that. Or maybe it's because we want an immediately visible result and we've loved people and we haven't gotten that result. Whatever that is, whatever that kind of knee-jerk, visceral reaction is that comes up for you when you think about loving people and you're like, well, I I would, but... Think about this. That's not the way that you have been loved by Jesus. That's not the way Jesus has loved you. Jesus has loved you and me as if it's the most important thing in the world. And he's offered his... His whole self, he's not just offered his mind to teach or his hands to serve, he's offered his heart to love. He's loved without concern for immediately visible results or reciprocity. Think about this. The feet that he washed in John chapter 13 would, within hours, arrive with a band of armed men to betray him and lead him away. The feet that he washed would, within hours, stand around a fire and deny that they even knew him. The feet that he washed would, within hours abandon him in the garden, fleeing into the night so as to not be associated with him or caught by the Roman guard with him. And yet, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, you and I are not Jesus, but we are called and commanded by Jesus to love one another just as he has loved us. So look to that new example of the love of Jesus. Believe and be transformed by what he has done for you, the love he has shown you, and then love as you yourself have been loved. Third and finally, not just a new era, not just a new example. The new commandment is new because of its new effect. Its new effect. 
Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the primary public external marker of identification for those who follow Jesus Christ is their love for one another. And this is yet another way, we've only been able to look at a few this month, yet another way that the resurrection has changed everything. Because now, in light of what Jesus has done, it's no longer your race or your nationality or your family line. It's not religious activity. It's not your wealth or your status or your position in life. It's your love for one another. And love among Christian community is, therefore, the ultimate apologetic. It's the ultimate display and the ultimate defense of our faith. And not only what we believe, but who we believe and who we follow. Missionary and and scholar named Leslie Newbegin once called this the hermeneutic of the gospel. Christians' love for one another is the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's the way that you interpret the gospel to the world. There are, as you think about this, so many reasons, therefore, to care about and to step into this kind of love with one another, this kind of Christian community. And this is why, as a church, it's such a central value to us. It's why we talk about it a lot. Number one, it's a command from Jesus. That makes it really significant that he commands us to do that. But beyond that, we look in Scripture, we see this is something that we've been designed for. We've been designed for relationship, and and relationships with other people that are knowing and following Jesus are a great source of care and a great source of comfort and growth in Christ for us. And then what we see here is beyond that, this is the primary display of the worth of Jesus to those that we live and work and play among. A short, kind of succinct way to think about it is this. Christian community is for you. It's meant for your genuine good. Christian community is also for others. It's meant for them to look on and to see and to consider who are these people and what are they about if this is the way that they love one another. And the effect of our deep and sincere love for one another is that the world will know. Now, two quick things to note about this. One, this is not a potential or possible effect. It's not that Jesus says the world might know. It's an actual realized effect. It says the world will know. And that means for us that there has to be something distinct about the love among fellow Christians that's different from the general pleasantries, the the general niceness that decent people in our world will show to each other all the time. It doesn't mean that you have to do grandiose things. It doesn't mean that you have to move overseas or sell everything that you own. It doesn't mean that you have to, for every single person, you know, start a nonprofit or do something great and grandiose like that. It does mean that our love is the sincere and costly and self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love that Jesus himself displays to his disciples and to us. And this is why it's especially beautiful when and powerful when local churches are made up of different races and ethnicities. When it's beautiful and powerful when, when churches are made up of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ages, even as we celebrate Family Worship Sunday today, uh, different backgrounds, different experiences. That means that there is something deeper at work in this group of people than just a shared interest. One New Testament scholar puts it like this. He says, Nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. There are many places you can go to find communities of shared interest. There are many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music or gardening or politics. 
but it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a circle of Christ's followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them, who exhibit love not based on the mutuality and attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone. And so if people in our neighborhoods and people in our schools and people in our workplaces are not noticing that we belong to Jesus, that we follow Jesus, it might be easy in that moment to decry the decline of society. Like, didn't it used to be better when we had more shared values as a culture or whatever you might decry in that moment? And that's worth considering at times. But first, we must examine, is there a log in our own eye? Is there a log in our own eye? And is our love for one another sincere? And is it distinct in such a way that anyone would have reason to notice in the first place? One other quick note about this. It's not that we as we're commanded here by Jesus. It's not that we love Christians to the exclusion of those who don't follow Jesus. But as counterintuitive as it might seem, we do prioritize love for one another. We do prioritize love for those that we share an identity with. And D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, It's not so much that Christians are to love the world less as they are to love one another more. Better put, Carson goes on to say, their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as children of God. And practically then, here's what this means for us in the way that we love one another. If other Christians feel like an obstacle to you, if other Christians feel like an obstacle to you, uh, if you view your relationships with other Christians and your care for other Christians as an inconvenience or just a major drain on your time that keeps you from doing other really important work, even if that other really important work is evangelism and, and sharing the gospel with people that don't yet know it, then you are missing, and I am missing, one of the most distinctive, powerful, effective tool that Jesus himself has given us, which is the community of the church. Now, I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of viewing other Christians and the difficulty it is to love one another in the community of, of the church. I've been guilty of viewing that as an obstacle. And so planting this church has been, and I've not described it as this every single moment of the way, but looking back on it, the grace of God, a seven-year almost now process of learning things that I really needed to learn and practicing things that I really needed to practice in the way I loved and, and continue to pursue love for other Christians. Maybe you're like me in that. And, and maybe you've been part of Christian groups or Christian communities where they care a lot about evangelism and new people coming to faith in Christ. They have a lot of missionaries they support overseas and they do a lot of activity and work in the community, but like no one in the church really cares about each other. They don't really like each other at all. They just go do that stuff out there and they don't actually love each other. That's missing what Jesus is talking about here in John 13. I don't think that's necessarily where many of us in this room miss. Um, I don't hear many of us complain that we're spending so much time caring for one another that we have no time to reach people that don't yet know Jesus. And so in that, I've felt a continual over these past seven years just urgency to call us to think more about the people that don't know Jesus. Um, I've, I've wanted to, and I continue to want to, call you to grow in your pursuit of mission and evangelism and mercy and justice. And actually, if I'm completely honest with you, that was what I was supposed to preach about this morning. Slated in the sermon schedule for this morning 
was new mission. I'm supposed to be preaching to you right now in this moment about new mission. And then I read John 13. And for some reason, I just stopped there. And I've stopped there this whole week and decided, I think instead we need to hear about this new commandment to love each other. And it sounds really counterintuitive. I don't really know why, in the providence of God, I'm preaching about a new commandment when I was scheduled to preach about new mission. But I trust, because of the way God leads and guides, that that's what we're supposed to hear this morning. That we need to learn not only how to cultivate a heart for those that don't know Jesus, but really, truly a depth of love for one another. And that we've got continued work to do there, that I've got continued work to do there, that God would make us into that kind of distinct, loving community with each other that the world would would take notice. And then we'd have the privilege of welcoming more people into our community to love as they become Christians. So I want to call you this morning to consider how you might love one another with the love that you've been shown by Jesus. Start small, How can you do that with just one or two people in this room this week? How can you show up and be present in their lives? How can you carry their burdens with them? How can you celebrate their joys with them? How can you offer your, not only your, your knowledge and your mind, not only your hands and your service, but really how can you offer your heart and your love to the other people who are Liberty Church? And I'll close with this. What's new about the new commandment? What's new about the new commandment? In a word, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who has inaugurated this new era. It's Jesus who has become our new example of love. And it's Jesus who assures us that as we love one another, the world will take note. So Liberty Church, enjoy the beautiful simplicity of this. And may we work work it out in the real complexity of our lives. Let us love one another. Let us love one another. And let us proclaim and let our love proclaim that we have been deeply loved by Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, it is great love with which you have loved us. You have taken in humiliation the place of the lowliest servant. You have washed our feet. You have gone to the cross. You did not consider your glory, your equality with God, something to be grasped, but you humbled yourself and made yourself nothing. And now, through that humiliation and death, you are now glorified at the right hand of the Father. And in this new day, with you as our new example, and with this promised new effect, that if we love each other the same way you've loved us, the world will know. We pray that you would make us those who love one another deeply. Give us the love that we lack for one another. Give us a renewed love for one another. I pray that we would be a community that's known by our love. Truly, in every sense of the word, that we would care about each other so much that the world would take notice, that people would consider and be called to consider who Jesus is because of the way we love each other. We are grateful for the way you have loved us, and we come now to this table remembering and seeing in tangible form the cost of it and that that cost has been paid. And so we pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.